0: Um, My name is Mike Reed, the lead pastor here. Grateful to just have you with us. If this is your first time or you're kind of new to kind of gathering with us, we love to just teach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, line by line, to see all that God might want to say to us. We believe that we need to be informed and transformed by this. Uh, And so we are grateful that we have it to uh, really see it perfects us the more that we we read it. And so um, we're in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is an Old Testament book, small book, prophetic book. But before we roll uh, right into that, I just wanted to, by way of prayer, Um, Many of us this week and dealing with where is God in troubled times, tragedy, fracture, um, this book covers that. And we're learning very quickly uh, that we are far from uh, immune to that. Um, Especially this past week with um, just the incident with the uh, tragic bus crash um, in the Paramus community. We've been in communication all week long with the school for pastoral help, counseling, prayer. Uh, It's been been a brutal week. Um, and uh, I know that I've talked to some of you that are connected, whether uh, detailedly or whether through a family or an extended family or niece, nephew who was involved in that. Um, so I know there are people even within our faith family that um, are kind of walking in the trenches of that. And so um, just want to say that there's there's a great comfort um, amidst tragedy and and, uh, and sorrow and difficulty that, that are found in the scriptures. But, but one in particular I, I share with the first service was in 2 Corinthians 4, um, he talks about how there's this posture we take of being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I'm kind of this weird, already not yet. We know glory's coming, yet we're still within the fractured, fallen state of humanity, and yet God is continuing to alleviate and free us from that, right? Even creation itself, Romans 8 says. But there's, the next verse goes on to say, we're perplexed at times, but not driven to despair. Um, and I just want to just, you got the green light to be perplexed, okay? So when you when you see tragedy and tragic things happen it's okay you don't have to be this christianese kind of oh, i don't know god's god's good no just everything's okay i'll just ignore it or just kind of paste a, a verse on it no you can be perplexed but we're not driven to despair uh, because we do have an unshakable hope in the cross and resurrection of jesus christ we do have a god that is at work in all these things which we've been seeing in habakkuk but listen let yourself feel uh, let yourself walk in those, in those places that, that your soul and heart and mind is walking, um, and let God heal you and meet you in those places. Don't ignore those. Um, and so I just wanted to take a moment just to, just to pray for families, for those involved, that the gospel would flourish and that uh, the kingdom of God would continue to advance. We see throughout history, through all types of tragedy, God triumphs and God expands his kingdom and its opportunity for his witnesses who are us. Um, So let's ask God for that. Then we'll roll into Habakkuk 2, verse 6. Uh, Father, we thank you that we sit as your people this morning under a God who's in full authority. Thank you, God, that you free us from having to try and change you but help us to seek to understand you. And we're uh, grateful even in moments like this that we have a divine comfort. Uh, So, Father, we pray that through... um, the means of families and other saints, whether they're in Eastbrook Middle School, whether they're neighbors to Eastbrook Middle School families, whether they're um, one of the elders here or a member here, God, would you use us as your hands and feet to bring about true hope, unending hope, and uh, comfort for those who are weary, who are distraught, who need the comfort from God himself. Uh, Father, would you help the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ to shine in spaces and places and ways that it could not if it were not for this. Lord, would you save men and women through this tragedy? God, would you comfort families today as they deal with complex questions? And Father, would you help us to be good voices of truth that's merciful, that bears burdens well, and that comes alongside? Father, we pray that, that through not just events like this, but, but the events of this fractured, fallen universe, that churches would continue to be filled in healthy places under faithful teaching and healthy teaching where people would learn about the goodness and kindness of our God and Jesus Christ. Father, lead us to your feet always. Lead us to your hill where we find help in time of need. Thank you that you're a high priest who understands and sympathizes with us and is not distant and not abstract. And help us as we we sit under your teaching, under your words, God, might it fuel us and transform us and mature us more into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Habakkuk chapter 6 uh, is where we're going to be. Habakkuk was a prophet. It's in the uh, back of your Old Testament. You can go to the back of your Old Testament, move back a couple books. And we're going to go through uh, these 14 verses. We're going to go through chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to chapter 20. And uh, what you're going to see is basically the same issues are continuing to arise. We're going to hit it from from a few different angles. Um, and here's what you're basically going to see today. Habakkuk is a man who loves God, submits to God, follows God. He he uh, is is faced with a, a season they're in as the people of God, where there's not only internal strife, internal sin, internal rebellion. There was a King Josiah who uh, reigned and ruled over the people of Israel and he brought about revival, he brought about repentance, people turned back to God and now they're, they're wayward again, they've plummeted, there's, there's institutional chaos, there's governmental chaos, there's moral waywardness and so um, he basically comes to God and asks a lot of the questions that maybe you find yourself asking which is God, uh, I look out and I see injustice, I see impression, I see strife, I see uh, just, just anything but harmony, anything but unity, anything but hope and help and um, are you in this? Are you idle? Are you aware of this? Are you going to be active? What are you doing? You seem to just sit by and watch. Do you care about your people who are suffering? And and God shows up and answers and says, yeah, I'm actually not being idle. I'm actually not just standing by. I'm going to bring about these morally perverse, wicked Babylonians. They're going to come in and wreak judgment over you, and they're going to discipline you due to your sin and rebellion. And then, by the way, um, they're going to actually come, and you're going to actually take them out, and I'm going to overthrow them in the end. And so you see this weird workings of God where... um, He's getting answers from God, but then after he gets answers from God, he basically uh, sees and is revealed that the Chaldeans aren't off the hook at all, that actually judgment will be upon them as well. And so here's where God kind of turns his face towards not just the judgment and the refinement that's going to come upon God's people, but the judgment that's going to come upon the Chaldeans itself. And so here are the two things we're going to see this morning. Um, One is the source of the evil, and secondly, to find comfort in the face of this evil. Two things we're going to see. Uh, and again, we're going to see a lot of recap, uh, but God's going to say some new things to us. So it's, uh, and here, here's the, the last thing I want to say before we hit verse 6. Um, Habakkuk this morning is going to lay some weight. Okay? Now, he's been laying weight all, all series. So if you've been coming to Habakkuk at all, uh, this isn't your, yay, Christmas Eve, you know, Jesus is here, his birth, resurrection, and we're all happy getting presents. This is weighty. This is deep. This is profound. But I'm telling you, if you hang in there, it's going to get awesome. Basically, if you want to understand Habakkuk, it's a burden, 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 celebration in the last three verses, okay? So everyone in their Bible loves the last three verses. You'll hear them quoted on coffee cups. No one will talk about the first three and a half chapters, okay? So we're talking about the three and a half chapters, so we get to two weeks from now, we get to chapter 3, 17 to 19, and we celebrate, okay? We're still celebrating. In the meantime, we're going to celebrate... Finally, at the end of where he ends with this culmination of salvation, which is so beautiful. So my bet is that if you have not bled and have not gone through dark nights and dark days, um, you might not lean into this and need a longer runway. Um, But if you've bled in this life and you've experienced difficulty and sorrow and tragedy, it's likely you'll lean into this a little bit quicker. But it's good for our souls and good for our hearts and minds. So verse 6, here's what God continues to say. Last week he showed us that inwardly we're puffed up. Right? That's our soul within us and that the unrighteous live with unbelief, faith in us through pride and the righteous will live by faith, trust in God. And he's going to continue to show how this will reveal itself in his charge against the Chaldeans. Verse 6, here's what uh, God says. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? And say woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you trouble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in in them. Okay, so God is now going to give a series of woes. Now now, just base in point, if God woes you, that's not a good deal. Okay, that, that's basically this prophetic utterance that says you're in sin, you need to turn from your sin and trust to me. This is why prophets were sent. Prophets were sent to a particular people in a particular time from God to say to these people a word from God and say, hey, uh, you're, you're wandering in rebellion, you're off the path of God, turn to God, he's a gracious God, he's a good God, he's a kind God, he's also a super just God, so if you don't turn turn, there's destruction. If you turn to God, there's safety, there's refuge, there's protection with him. And so here he comes to show these Chaldeans, hey, woe to you. There's judgment coming upon you. You're not getting off the hook. You're not getting off scot-free. And this is going to be good news to Habakkuk. But it's also going to create something in Habakkuk. will have to examine his own heart. And so God gives these woes, and all of these woes are just basically reversals, great reversals. Everything they're going to do to the people of Israel will ultimately be done to them. Okay, that's what you're going to see. So, so the first one here, he's showing that they will, plund- they will be plundered by all the, those that they plunder. You sow what you reap. This is the law in Scripture, Galatians 6. God's reminding us that no one gets away with anything. Right? He's going to say ultimately that everything is God's. It's all his inheritance. Babylonians, they loved trampling cities, trampling towns, trampling nations and extorting for selfish gain. They would stockpile their riches. They were a wealthy place due to the ways that they oppressed those who could not make a name for themselves. Sound familiar? And so here they're going in. He goes, oh, there will be a day where you're going to be plundered by the very people you plunder. And it's going to be by my hand. What he's showing us is God owns everything. God is the one who owns all inheritance. He owns everything in the world, in the universe. So you might think you're accumulating for yourself, but in the end, God will take it all back and he will rightly distribute it to his saints, and he will judge those who wrongly stewarded those who had what was really his. He's just showing us the seriousness of his glory, the seriousness of his, of his might and his holiness and all that God is in his character. So he basically turns to the Chaldeans and says, Woe to you. It reminds us that life is very short and eternity is very long. And that God is a God of justice who will enact justice perfectly and finally. It may not be our time, but it will be his time. Trust him in the meantime. So we sit under this God that we can believe in, that he sees injustice. He sees oppression. He sees the extortion. He sees the evil and wickedness. He sees those who try to earn dishonest gain and load up for themselves and put others in their debt. Justice is good for those who understand that and have been there. This is why the scripture says we don't store up where moth and rust destroy, right? Like we don't exhaust our lives in trying to accumulate for ourselves. We realize we try to not worship wealth but steward our wealth, right? It's right to save, right to give, right to look out for one's family. The Bible says you're actually worse than a non-believer if you don't do that. So we want to do that. But we ultimately want to remember any good thing in the God place destroys everything. Right, So we want to make sure that we rightly have all that God has given us. He goes on to the second woe. Not only will they be plundered by all the people that they plunder, he says in verse 9, everything that you've built up your security to be will be unsecured. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. The second woe is, um, listen, you you think you're secure because you're strong and because you've accumulated some form of safety for yourself. So, um, this is what that looks like birds and nests, according to this text, right? They would put their nest in the highest place. That's how you're secure. That's how you're safe. Okay, let's put that in Bergen County language. This is your 401k. This is your securities. This is your PR managers. This is your planning. This is your lawyers, right? We want to get our lives in a place where we're totally secure. We're totally safe. We're above everybody else. So, if anything comes, we're good, right? God's saying, Know when Jesus returns, He's higher than everybody. We're all lower than Him, and He will rightly judge the wicked and the good. Those who followed Him, those who did not follow Him, those who accumulated for themselves safety apart from His name, and those who found refuge and safety in His name alone. So He's showing here this amazing, like kind of picture of these two kinds of people, and He's wowing it upon the Babylonians. So it doesn't matter how much you have in the bank on the day of judgment. Doesn't matter how much is in your 401k. Doesn't matter how much property you own. Doesn't matter how much your land attorney costs. Doesn't matter who your PR manager was. At the end of it all, all that will stand for you is either Jesus who's your righteous champion or you left with nothing. And so here he's given a weighty, weighty word. But here's the other piece that he shows here. He says it doesn't matter how high your nest is. He's also saying not only have the Chaldeans beat up and conquered people, but they have made it their own lives safe off the blood and work of others. So to be safe, they've oppressed others. To make a name for themselves and find security, they've extorted others. So they're living in opulence while others are hard-pressed. And the Bible says, on the day of woe, even the things that they made. He uses this amazing animation of creation, the walls and the beams of the woodwork. The very things that you made as gods to keep you safe will cry out against you. Right, this is like in Genesis 4 where Cain murders Abel. And what does God come and say? Hey, the ground where, where Abel's body is, the blood actually cries out justice. So, so this is, again, themes we've already heard, themes we've already discussed, that, that God sees all, nothing goes unlooked, that God is in full authority, that God will fully enact justice fully and finally when he comes in an instant. So do not be deceived. Do not be dismayed. And then he says this in verse 12. He says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Third woe, well, their civilization will be replaced with devastation. Um, the Babylonians built their kingdom upon deception, abuse, fear, intimidation, confusion, revenge, and God is showing that's all going to be the fuel that will ultimately destroy you and your nation. Um, so you and I look out, we see injustice. You and I look out, we see oppression. You and I look out to see cities marked by violence, nations marked by violence. When Jesus returns, there will only be truth where there, will be, where there was lies. There will only be healing where there was brokenness. There will only be light where there was darkness. Jesus will do that. Jesus will heal all things. He will glorify his name. And he's showing them that ultimately, there's civilizations that they built destroying others would ultimately destroy them here's what God is saying in basic point because he throws in that verse 14 which we're going to get at in a minute that's going to reveal a lot and it's exciting verse 14 though he's showing that his glory is serious he's showing that his glory is serious he's showing that anything that tries to stand up against his glory will never stand He says, there's going to be a day, and this is what's awesome. You're going to see amidst the bloodshed, the tears, the oppression, the injustice, you'll see these bright spots, these bright flashes of hope. Isn't that how faith works? Right, where it seems dark, it seems gloomy, it seems oppressive, it seems like daylight isn't coming, but then there's these flashes of hope. And he shows it here in verse 14. He says, no, there's going to be a day where the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the whole earth like the waters cover the sea. Salvation is coming despite this judgment. Jesus will rule and reign despite those who will not follow him into glory. So verse 14, he's gonna continue to unveil the source of this evil. He says, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. I'd teach that, I'd get fired. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Fourth woe, everything you glory in will ultimately be your shame. That's, that's real. That'll preach, right? Right? I mean, all the things that we glory in, I mean, that we see the world glorying in, right? That we see oppressors glory in and injustice pursuers glory in, right? Will one be the thing that strips them naked on the day of judgment? Man, that, that's real. That's serious. He's showing us, and what he gives us here is the imperial ambitions of Babylon that he's talking about here that made the nations drink from this metaphorical cup of their anger, But here's what he's showing. He's showing that this metaphor of of drunkenness is this powerful illustration of what the Babylonians would do, the depth of their wickedness. They would actually go in and sought to intoxicate and rape and ravish and systematically strip away everything of value in the nations they overtook. So God's saying, I see the depth of it. I see the sin in it. They were predators always seeking prey. But there's a stunning reversal There's a reversal in all of these woes, but there's a stunning reversal in this woe. In this woe, he says, Babylon will receive the very wrath upon themselves that they pour out, but it will be from God himself and through his people. Now, we know in Revelation 18, right, it'll be currently and it'll be finally, right? Babylon will actually be judged by God. But he's saying, hey, you're not getting away with anything, so, so here as he's, as he's giving this, laying before this, he goes, hey, like Jesus in the garden, Jesus has the, the wrath of God. He knows he's going to take it on the cross. He says, man, this, this cup is before me. Is there any way it can pass by me? Any way it cannot come to me? And he goes, not my will, but your will be done. He ultimately takes the wrath of God. We've discussed this for weeks here in this book of Habakkuk. That It had to be spent somewhere for him then to step in and justify you and I and make us righteous before him through the work of Christ. But in, he's, he's basically saying to the Babylonians, you know how that cup, he asked it to pass and it didn't. You're going to ask it to pass, and it won't pass from you either. You're going to feel the consequence of your rebellion against me and my people. He's laying it before them. There are many things that are glorified that are shameful, are there not? Things that are paraded that should be repented of. That's our hearts. We see this all the time. Uh, There are many that say today, right, well, there's either no God or he doesn't care. So I'll abuse, take advantage of, oppress, celebrate it. God must tolerate it. God says, whoa. God says, whoa. God is a God of love, serious love. And he loves his kids enough to protect us from serious harm. Right? We talked about this at length the past couple weeks. This is God's way of saying, hey, that road leads to death. My road leads to life. So all these things you glory in are actually kindling, so you'll just be a brighter fire. So it'll just be Hotter. But you're glorying these things that are shameful. And you think you're getting away with these things, but God is a God of justice. Now, we've already talked at length about God's justice and wrath, how it's necessary to understand that for our joy and salvation. But, but here's the other dangerous temptation. Okay, um, here's why. When you read verses like this, and maybe some of you are sitting here going, "Man, that, that's that's serious. I don't know that I want to be- believe in that God. That God sounds angry. That God sounds mean. That God sounds like he just wants to smite people." And well, look, we've discussed at length too how actually it's unbelievable patience, it's unbelievable mercy, unbelievable goodness, and how you can't extricate these attributes of God. So he's just loving, and he's a fairy that drops fairy dust on people. He's also not just somebody who smites people out of his will. Exodus 36 says God takes no delight in the punishment of the wicked. He is in Enacting his justice because he is holy and he would not be loving if he did not do that. And so here's what you got to understand though. When you hear verses like this, here's what may have happened is, and I kind of see this happen this temptation is God becomes to you just an object to be studied. So, So here's what you do He is not a person to worship, to pursue, to be devoted to, to be enthralled by. He's an object that you study and you critique. Right? So, so here's what happens. Um, you go, well, God, I don't understand why you're so frustrated with me with that. Or, God, I don't know why you don't like that. Or why you like this. Why is this bad? Why is this good? Why is this wrong? Why is this right? And you just critique him like he's some abstract object. So, so here's what happened. Your weight holds no bearing on a personal intense God deity. All it is is this abstract kind of law that you're breaking. It's not attached to anyone. It's not grieving his name. It's not belittling his fame. It's not ripping away glory. It's not trying to steal anything that's already rightly his. It's not you treading his planet. It's you just saying, you can't do that. You can't do that. So you treat him like an object instead of a personal God who wants you to find your highest happiness and joy in him. Satisfaction in being enthralled by him and worshiping him, being devoted to him. So this is what it does your sin holds and lays no weight at all. It's this abstract entity over here that just does something bad. But it does not ever offend him. It does not ever burn against him. So the seriousness of this is totally stripped away. There's no personal weight to him at all. And this is why sometimes hearing that God has justice towards us and our sin doesn't sit well with us because we've never actually even functioned with him like he's personal. We function with him like he's an object to be studied and God is deeply personal and that's what sets our God apart that he wants to, us to know him and be known by him and That he reveals the things that grieves him that he that he welcomes us into his glory through the work of his son. Powerful. And now God gets at the heart, and this is important, verse 18. God will get to the heart of all this. That's why I've been moving. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. I love it. Here are the bookends. If you want to understand verses five to 20, you have to look at verses four and 18 and 19. Okay, if you remember last week. So here was what he's doing is he's showing you the bookends of the meaning of everything in between. This is super, super, super important. If you look at God in the Old Testament, I love it. He'll mock these other gods, and the fundamental way he'll mock them is say, hey, get all the gods together, have them say something. Can they talk? Can they speak? That's what sets the God of the Bible apart. He speaks. He spoke creation into existence. In Exodus 34, he gets up and he announces for the first time to Moses who his name is, what his character is like. God speaks, right? So it's this mock against these other idols that these Babylonians were making for themselves. But here's what he's revealing in this text. And this is so, so important. That the source of the evil in the Babylonians, steamrolling and burning down cities and enacting wickedness, the same seeds that led to that are the same seeds in you and I's heart. It's pride. It's idolatry. Now we're going to go, oh, Babylonians? You can't compare me to that. Right? I mean, that's like comparing Mother Teresa with Bin Laden. Like, you can't, you can't do that. There, there's, I mean, it's such a difference. This is huge. You know what he's saying here? And what he wants us to hear? You and I, just like the Babylonians, are unceasingly, passionately, continually worshipers. That's the issue. Verse 4, last week, soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. Arrogance ends with idolatry. You worship these other images. You don't worship me. So what he's showing here is you devote yourself to, we devote ourselves to, our worship to, our affections to, something. And whatever you do that with, that's where your identity is, that's where your worth is, that's where your God is. So you worship your spouse, you will destroy your spouse. You worship your job, your job will destroy you. You worship your kids, you'll ruin your family. You think that the name on your clothes and the place that you live literally means and it qualifies your value and identity. And the Bible steps in and says no, there's only two things. There is the created things and And there's the creator, the one who made all things. And if you set your devotions, you set your affections, you set your pleas and all of your wants on the created things, you're an idolater. If you do it on the creator, you're a worshiper. That's the great divide in the Bible. That's that's what separates everything. Romans 1 says this. You are either an idolater or you're a worshiper and you cannot be both. So here's what we do. We take all of the things that we esteem, that we love, that we have affections for, that are made things, that are created things, and we put on the altar everything else at its disposal. So you throw your relationship with God, your integrity, your family, other good things, and you blow it all up and light it on fire at the expense of getting what you really are devoted to in your heart. Because that's the thing that you worship, that's the thing that you love, that's the thing that you want. And that's what we do. We live for these things that are created and they can never give us what the creator gives us. And the result is dissatisfied, aggravated, despairing pursuit. That's what happens. We'd rather put everything else on the altar to be slaughtered so that that creative thing we live for gets all our worship and devotion and attention. Do we not? And at the expense sometimes, we'll put God on that altar. And the one true living God, the God of the scriptures, the God of creation, the God of the Father of Jesus Christ, comes along and says, hold on, no, no, no. When you even take your good things and make them God things, you destroy all things. Listen, I love my wife. I love Jackson, my son. I love this church. I love being a pastor I love my job. But listen, if I worship those things, I destroy all things. Man, man, if I start worshiping my spouse, if I start worshiping my son, if I start worshiping you, if I start worshiping my job, man, this whole thing goes to shambles. Man, we destroy everything. So he's saying even even the good things, if you make them God things, it ruins all things. See, idolatry at its root is you placing anything above Jesus Christ in your affections and your worship. And your love and your devotedness we don't worship God to get anything we worship God because he's everything right I don't know the theology that you've kind of walked in growing up I don't know what you've been thinking how things have shaped you but I'm saying God is giving a word to the Babylonians that we all need to hear ourselves because the very same evidence of evil and seeds in their heart is the same ones that reside in us we just haven't gone that far And this is why Habakkuk teaches the source of this evil is the proud heart. That's what he's teaching us. We learned last week our soul is puffed up, it's empty. Therefore, we need to. And here's the thing: when you're an idolater, which we all are out of the womb, by the way. So just look at your kids. If you have new kids, they're an idolater. Feed me, make much of me, give me milk. I hate it. We don't get my way. Okay, they, they're they're all idolaters. They're just baby idolaters. So they all want something. Okay all of us are this original sin out of the womb no one escapes it okay so so we come into this do you know what we try to do though we try our whole entire life apart from the intervening work of god and jesus christ to clothe ourselves with glory we need glory we need honor we need significance we need to be affirmed we need to be told we're something we need to be told that we matter Therefore, we clothe ourselves with glory of some kind. This is why if you read um, celebrities, uh, Madonna did this amazing excerpt in Vanity Fair. Not that I avidly read Vanity Fair. I just know it's in there. Okay, I don't, and even if I did, who cares? So, so like, she's, she's really good, though. She's in there, and she talks about celebrity, and she talks about how when she grew up, how she didn't feel significant, didn't feel like she had any honor or any worth any value and so what celebrity did for her, what it started, it started perpetually giving her these boosts of the glory that she craved. And so celebrity would say something about her and she'd reach a height and she'd feel significant and safe for a moment. Then you know what happened? She'd need another one. So she'd go higher and then then she'd get this, celebrity would give her some sort of resolution for a moment, then you know what would happen? She needed to go higher. You know the problem? There's a ceiling there's a ceiling. And you can't get past the ceiling without the work of Jesus Christ. You will be perpetually frustrated and disgruntled and despairing and slamming into the wall or slamming into the ceiling trying to look for the next glory that can clothe you and satisfy you. That's what you're looking for. And so what he's showing us here is so much at the heart of the Babylonian culture was pride. Any culture, the heart of it's pride. I don't even have time to get into his history. But here's what he's showing us. Just like the Babylonians, the reason they were burning down cities, killing and ransacking, is the same reason that so much of us do what we do. We might not be killing and ransacking, but we are chasing and pursuing these other things because of the pride in our hearts. It's why some of us, whether it's making money, singing, career, doing art. If you know your own heart and you know it well, you know to a great degree we are insecure creatures and we're trying to cover ourselves with honor every day. We are. You and I are. It's what we do. It's the air we breathe. I want to feel loved. That's why we're working so hard. And God says that's a source of evil. It's pride. It's idolatry. Listen to what Lewis Smeeds wrote. It's a great church planner, pastor, theologian out in Washington state. He said this, and I wish I had it on the screen, but I'll send it to you if you want it when I'm finished. He said, Pride is the spiritual sense in the refusal to let God be God. So it's to grab God's status for oneself. It's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his world and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant on one's own resources. And that's the great illusion. That's the delusional fantasy of all fantasies. That is the cosmic put on. It's the fantasy that we can make it as our own masters of our own lives, and that fantasy leaves us empty, restless, and at the center so also, as we are attacked by the demons of fear and anxiety, we learn to swagger and to bluff and to look everywhere for people to use and to buttress our shaky egos that our pride has created. Now, every new situation calls forth this question, what can I get out of this situation to support the need of my ego for power and applause? And every time you meet a new person in your heart of hearts, you say, subconscious perhaps, How can this person contribute to my need to prove that I am better than others? And all of this is because we are empty and we are at the center. Do you see yourself in there? If you don't, continue listening to it again. Because that pride is the essence of every human heart apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ, the source of all evil in the world, same as the wicked Babylonians. This is why if you look at these bookends, you see it. Because it's only by the grace of God that you and I are not the executioner. See, if we rise up and say, look at those, the injustice, the oppressor, all that, kill them, judge them, right? That, that's the Babylonian way. No, God's way is, no, you and I are the problem. We're sinful from birth. We've got deep-seated pride, and it can only be resolved through grace grace outside of ourselves, mercy given that we do not deserve in a God who's perfect and lives at our substitute and replaces his life with our life and clothes us with the glory that we do not have, that we are searching for. This is why Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in the hearts of men, which means only what is eternal can fill the gap of eternity. So we look for everything else to to, to, fit the gap of eternity. Listen, your spouse is not eternal. Your job is not eternal. Your finances are not eternal. Your career is not eternal. Your lusts and loves, they're not eternal. mean, they are bad, terrible, functional gods. And listen, there's gonna come a day, if it hasn't already, it's gonna come, where you're gonna need divine help and you're gonna be godless on that day. Because all of your gods are gods that break apart and never hold up what you believe they promise you. And it's this pursuit of glory. But here's what's awesome. We have a great comfort, friends. We have an unbelievable comfort and answer in the face of this evil that permeates our hearts and permeates this world. And he gives it in these two verses, verse 14 and verse 20. There's there's flashes of hope right? That's how hope works. That's how faith works, right? You, you see glimmers of it. You see flashes of lightning amidst the darkness, and here's what he gives us amidst the darkness, the death, the killings, the bloodshed, flashes of light, and the darkness. Verse 14, he says, don't worry, salvation is coming amidst All this rebuke, all this destruction, all this oppression, the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the whole earth like the waters cover the sea. The Babylonians, you and I, are hungry for glory. We've tried to cover it with our own glory. And he goes, no, no, one day you're going to bathe in it. One day you're going to swim in it. One day you're going to drink it. Every single day for eternity. Sit on that one. Right just just verse 14 alone. Let just drink that verse alone. Everything you're wanting, everything you're aching for, everything you're fighting for, everything you're stuck on, everything you're bothered by, everything you're worried by, all your fears, all your anxieties, it's it's all stemming from your desire to clothe yourself with a refuge, a protector, a glory that you cannot have on your own, and this world will never give you, and the Lord of glory needs to give it to you. And when he gives it to you, it's warm. And all of a sudden, your heart is at ease and your soul is satisfied. And this is what he's getting at here, that that the only glory that can really satisfy the eternal heart is the glory, honor, love, and beauty of God and Jesus Christ. You say, how in the world can that be? How can that happen? Here's what's amazing as as you're looking at this text. Verses... Five to nineteen is a picture of the life of Jesus. You're like, what are you talking about? You're seeing a life painted of the life of Jesus Christ. Because if you if you read the life of Jesus, that's why I encourage you get in the Gospels. Look at the face of Jesus Christ, man. Read about that man. He's not just a man. Man, this is insane. You can't make up the stuff he says and does. I mean, actually get in it, man. And if you got this intellectual, you know, superiority that says, ah, it's not really true. It's all written by humans. Okay, well, use your intellectual vigor to persuade yourself out of Christianity. Do the same work. Have enough intellectual honesty to go out and see if it's true. And here we see, as you open up the life of Christ, what Habakkuk is saying here, what we're, he's seeing in this whole thing, he's going, "It seems as though our situation is hopeless, and now the Babylonians are coming to bring judgment. You say we'll eventually overthrow them, and your justice and your righteousness and your holiness and your goodness will be upheld." But it's hard to see that right now. Okay, that's what Habakkuk's saying. That's the book of Habakkuk. That's all we've been learning. Hope, I know you're telling me it's there. It seems far off. It seems like the wicked guys are winning and the righteous guys are losing. It seems like you're, you're idle, you're distant. Nothing is happening. Look at Jesus' life. Jesus comes and what happens, man? He is holy. Everyone else is unholy. He is perfectly obedient obedient. To every dot and tittle of the law of the Father God, and everyone else is disobedient and impossible to uphold the law of God. Man, He is pure, everyone else is impure, He's faithful, everyone else is unfaithful. Right, he has his own good friend betray him. He goes and he's falsely tried, falsely accused, falsely mocked. He goes to have this actual accusation brought against him. As kings are sitting on thrones, and he's a king supposedly sitting on rocks. It seems like God is not winning. The world is winning. God is losing. The women are weeping. Disciples are despairing. Where is hope? He's hanging on a cross. Darkness covers the land. God dies. Where is God? I don't see it. You promised justice. You promised salvation. You promised daylight coming. It seems like we're swimming in darkness and injustice and oppression and plight and difficulty. It seems like you're nowhere. And God rises. He rises from the dead. He defeats Satan, sin, and death. He walks. He eats with people, meets with people. He indwells us with his spirit. He says, no, those of you who are a mind, this ever-pressing forward, advancing church of Jesus Christ, he says now, as he came in Philippians 2, it emptied himself. He left glory. He walked as a fully man, fully God, never sinned, dies as your substitute in your place. He rises, and then what happens when he saves you through his work and resurrection? He closes you with his glory he gives it to you all that you wanted all that you were chasing all that you had in false gods and false superiors and false everything he says no let me clothe you with mine it says you become hidden in Christ the Lord of glory the hope of glory Jesus Christ who's in you that's salvation that's newness of life it's a glory issue it's my pride. It's my idolatry. God's not an object. He's personal. The righteous will live by faith. I trust him. Pride, faith in me. Righteous, trust in him. All of a sudden we see that, man, this God who comes, man, we're all running out of the garden in Genesis 3 naked. It ain't just Adam and Eve. You're like, Adam oh, and Eve were out. No, we were all there running out naked, trying to find a covering to cover our shame, and we needed a glory to cover us. And God says, not only will Jesus Christ Himself cover you in salvation if you turn from your sin and trust in Him, He will one day, you will bathe in it like the waters cover the sea. You'll swim in it, you'll drink of it. What an amazing thought. So the gospel humbles us out of our pride and makes us more confident than we ever were before. Huh. So you're not insecure are trying to chase other pleasures and lusts and loves. You don't need to. You're fine. You have glory now. The glory that your hunger wanted. And now you no longer struggle to try to achieve at all costs, improve yourself, and put other people down for you to extricate gain and extort others for selfish reason. It doesn't matter how far down the line you get, whether you're a Babylonian Whether you think you're a morally righteous, upstanding person on Wall Street, the seed's there. It can only be met through Jesus Christ. So what do we do? Verse 20. This is how he ends it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth, I like to say shut up, but keep silence before him. Right? He just says, wouldn't it do us all some good every once in a while just to shut up? Right? Right? I mean, we're so busy telling everybody what to do in our lives, organizing, org charts. If you're over a company or if you're a mom, telling your kids, we're so busy telling everybody else what to do. And he goes, man, when it comes to God, um, it'd be so good just to shut up, just to get yourself off of you and onto him. He's in his holy temple. Chapter 1, man, he's everlasting, sovereign, all the names that Habakkuk gave him. He rules and reigns. This is not outside of his control. He sees it. He will enact justice. No good deed goes, or bad deed goes unpunished, and no good deed goes unrewarded in Christ. He is for you. Nothing can conquer you. When he saves you, he saves you finally. When he satisfies you, he satisfies you fully. I mean, is it just me? Um, Because he's not saying, because he's creator God, hush your mouth and don't talk to him. Gladly, talk to your God the Father. He's saying, because God is unlike any other idol, he speaks. You should listen to him. Listen to what he says. Listen to his ways. And then walk under him and submit to him and follow him. I don't know about you, but uh, every time something happens, everyone has an interpretation, right? Oh, this is it speculation. Oh, this is it. This is how it should go. God knows all. God sees all. God's going to have the final word. No, she was lying. He was right. He was lying. She was right. That was wrong. This is truth. That was error. This is truth. That was unjust. I'm going to make it just. That was evil. I'm going to judge that. He's going to have the final word. We're not going to have the final word. God's going to have the final word. He sits in his holy temple. You know, that's why as we hit troubled times, everybody has theological answers, right? So we come up with different belief systems. So we have the atheistic belief. Well, there's just no god. That's an answer. It's definitely not a comfort. So evil's going nowhere, no justice will be finally resolved. No wrongs will be righted. No future glory, no 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 paradise that our hearts are longing for, no 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 righteous judgment, no no reconciliation, no nothing. No, it's not a it's not a comfort. Okay, well, well, maybe we're like open theists, agnostic, something. I don't know. God makes the world, and then he doesn't really have authority or control. He's kind of showing up late. Not sure if he's going to take that. Oh, surprised by that. Not sure how I'm going to handle that. But I'm kind of ruling and reigning. I'm kind of an That's an answer. It's definitely not comfort. I don't need a puny helper. I need a God who's in authority, who's sovereign, who's in charge, who intervenes, who knows how to rule and reign everything better than I do. Well, I don't know, let's do like pluralism or, I don't know, suffering, yin and yang. Like God's evil, God's good, God's impure, God's pure, he's in everything, pantheistic, kind of all blended together. I'm going, no, no, God is holy. God is pure, God is good, God is always good. There is no evil. When you see evil, it is a rejection of God, not a projection of God. That's an answer. That definitely isn't a comfort. And then you have Christian Christianity, you have the Christian faith, that there's a God who is personal and he sees suffering and he identifies with us in our suffering and that he actually writes every wrong and he's actually God of justice. He actually likes to uphold holiness and despite us not wanting him and rebelling and wandering and running from him and trying to clothe ourselves with glory that will dissatisfy us perpetually for the rest of our lives, he decides to come and empty himself and clothe us with his glory despite us. That's an answer and that is a big comfort. And he promises that he'll be our high priest who understands and walks with us and indwells us and serves alongside us and empowers us for the life of ministry ahead. That he will not forget us and he will reign and rule with us and that justice is coming and that life is short and eternity is long and life is best with him than without him. That's a comfort and an answer. Let's ask God for help to believe that. Father, thank you that we're Under you. And God, this was a sober call to us this morning that there is something inside of us that we cannot cure, we cannot fix in of ourselves. We need a God who is fully satisfied in himself to give us even an inkling of himself. Father, we need glory outside of ourselves. We need something to humble us from our pride. So Father God, would you do that this morning? Father, we thank you that repentance is not just for the Christian, it's for the non-Christian as well. God, I pray for those this morning that you might be kind and merciful to them, that you might reveal to them where there are areas of their life that are futile, false gods, false protectors, false safety. That how one day, if we're not rooted in you, all that we plunder for ourselves will be plundered by you. All of the things that we build up for our own security will be stripped as insecure before you. That all the things that we glory in outside of you will be shameful before you. That God, if you do not act, if you do not intervene, if we do not have you, Father, we are lost. So God, would you save some this morning? Would you bring some to repentance and faith? It means to turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, to say you're God, your Lord, your Savior, only you could come and do what you did. Only you could show and demonstrate because of the hope you brought through a hopeless day that you still do it now. That the worst evil was done to the best man so that we might have hope in troubled times. And if you're a Christian, I just want to encourage you that repentance is not for one moment in your life where you repent and then you're good and you now move on to bigger and better things. We repent every day of our life to turn from things that our proclivities and our affections and our devotedness wants to run to outside of Jesus Christ. We say, God, let me repent and turn back to you again. Help me to repent and turn back to you again. You're my safety, you're my refuge, you're my glory, you're my help. God as we enjoy the Lord's Supper might we be nourished by the glory that is ours in Jesus Christ that as we drink of the cup and eat of the bread that we remember that you clothe us with yourself thank you that the message of salvation is that hunger is satisfied that you are the bread of life that when we eat of you we never hunger again when we drink of you we never thirst again may we come to you this morning eager eager and joyful, and thankful, and humbled. In Jesus' name, amen.